man, this is Lord's territory, and you got five seconds to get off. I tell you, you start counting five like a sucker. One, two, three. Hello and welcome to another edition of Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. My name is Aya Batonya Ebrakas and I'm so excited to be back with you. I know we missed a week because somebody twittered with some of the equipment and I also played myself by not checking things when I should have checked. So there's a hot tip for everyone. If you're ever doing something due diligence is to always check check and check once more just you know for the people in the back if you do subscribe to the circadian rhythms of life and you are enjoying a lunch break i hope that our chat today provides a little extra food for thought today i am speaking with sarah hubolt a freak show performer a self-professed natural born freak she has talked all over the world about the importance of accessibility. She is a very strong disability advocate and we're going to be here today talking about barriers to accessibility that people with disabilities, namely artists with disabilities, might face when working within certain um, art spaces and institutions. I'll also be talking to the one and only Phil Fresh who is a Sydney-based rapper who has just released this track called Jonah that I'm kind of obsessed with. Like, let's be honest, I'm totally obsessed with it. So stay tuned. You're listening to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. You had the audacity to leave your mental cigarettes on the kitchen floor. You know how much I hate you smoking and your asthma always acting up on a floor. You're never really on my mind. I just think of you from time to time. Can finally say I'm sleeping well at night. Don't need weed singing me a lullaby. Feel like I'm your mama, cause it's so damn hard just to please you. But now that's not my problem. I got no more OG love kush for you. I feel like I'm your mama, cause it's so damn hard just to please you. But now that's not my problem. I got no more OG love kush for you. Boo. I wanna see you do nothing but the best. But in order to do that, I think it will be best. I believe you on scene, block you off everything. Stop imagining that ring I stop this as if drinking Hoping that I see you on the weekend Going on my girl's phone to check your time Stalking all them bitches that like your profile Lies your profile Not anymore I, I feel like I'm your mama Cause it's so damn hard just to please you but now that's not my problem. I got no more OG though, cause for you, boo. I feel like I'm your mama, cause it's so damn hard just to please you. But now that's not my problem.
You're listening to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. That was Kate with OG Love Kush Part 2. I like Kate, uh, sis, your voice. I love your voice. I'm obsessed. Kate is someone that we should all keep an eye out for. She's making, she's out here making absolute waves, killing the game. I have nothing but respect for her. Uh, She's killing it. But anyways, I'm here with Sarah Hubolt. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I am an international physical theatre and circus performer. I grew up in Queensland. I went to Volcano Women's Circus straight after doing the Sydney 2000 Paralympics uh, in swimming. I did Paralympics. Uh, And then I joined the circus, and so I learnt trapeze, and I also studied social work. So Mm. I've got a tandem sort of disability advocate performer kind of lifestyle. Yeah, that's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) So you've actually been a disability advocate since a very young age. So mm. you started at the age of five, is that correct, with your first media interview? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was doing I was doing little athletics with my mum and uh, the papers came, you know, because it was all about multi-sports events and, and triumph over adversity and that kind of angle. And so the TV cameras also came and they were like, oh, let's interview this five-year-old. <laughs> so Love that was it. my first interview. <laughs> so amazing, though. Yeah. You have so much courage. Like I was mentioning to you before, how afraid I am of public speaking. So I find it incredible that even at like age five, you were able to be in an interview. You mentioned before, whilst we were on our way here, you know, cab drivers not even thinking that you had like a physical disability mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. like that. So maybe actually before we get into all of that, <laughs> yeah. would you want to maybe talk us through your disability just because people might be like, what are they talking about right now? Yeah, right. So I tend not to answer the question, what's your disability or how much Sorry, can you was- see? Yeah. No, 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 because it's, it's cool because what I do instead is um, I say, hey, I have access requirements and they are to use a screen reader or can you please say your name to me like when you speak to me at the start of the conversation so I know who I'm talking to mm. or would you mind helping me cross the road because the beeper system on the traffic lights isn't working. FYI, really hard when you're in New York City and there's no beepers on the traffic lights. Yeah, it's so true. They <laughs> yeah. don't have those there. So I'm like, how do I cross the road when I travel and my first time in Brazil, I was like, okay, the first thing I need to learn in Brazilian Portuguese is, hmm, can you help me cross the road, please? Right. (laughs) So those kind of access challenges is how I answer the disability question. So from saying what I need, people can generally pick up that I have a vision impairment, that I'm partially sighted. Mm. So I like to answer it in in kind of, it's a riddle for some people, but I'm really strong on that politic because that comes from the social model of disability. So that comes from society as disabled so people don't need to know my medical condition they need to know what the barriers are in society and that is access to information and communication websites any kind of information menus in bars information about when it's safe to cross the road so that that's how I kind of answer that question no I think that was Mm. a great answer and it's going to make me think more critically before I ask other people (laughs) anything similar to that so thank you for that I'm always open to being educated it's just actually like when somebody asks me, where am I from? And, you know, it's very invasive questions. So, yeah, I truly do apologise. In terms of disabled access into theatres, could you talk us through audio description and what that means? 
Yeah. So audio description is when you verbally describe the visual. So anything that you see out of your eyes. So that might be the way someone looks or the costume that they're wearing or the set design or the prop that they're holding but not referencing in any kind of verbal way. Mm -hmm. An audio describer would describe those visual things to an audience who are traditionally blind or partially sighted. I find that more audience benefit from that, not just the blind and partially sighted. For us, it's, it's absolutely impossible to enjoy the show without audio description. Mm -hmm. For someone who has eyesight, it actually enhances their visceral experience of a show. So it's a win-win in many ways. Um, And for a performer, audio description is a really interesting scripting device. So it's about how do you make a show where you put the audio description into the script itself so that the blind and partially sighted audience can come without having to hire an access worker um, and everybody benefits from it. Yeah, that sounds yeah, incredible. I feel like we should do that at more mm. shows for sure. Every show, if mm. possible. So you talked though before, whilst we were on our way here, about the barriers to audio description in the sense that talking about gender, mm. if there are people that identify as non-binary or gender non-conforming, it can be very challenging to have audio description that um, addresses their physical appearance. Yeah, um, so the the basics of audio description is you start with an overview of the space, the room, the environment that's in front of you or that you're in. Then you narrow it down to really specific things like uh, what is someone wearing or how are they moving or what is their facial expression um, so that you give all of those nuanced pieces of information to someone who can't see them. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to how performers want to be described on stage... Uh, it is about working with the performer so that they're comfortable with the description. Same when it's dance. You really need to work with the choreographer to know that the, the dance is described in an adequate way that meets the choreographer's intent. Yeah. So it's very similar. When it comes to intersectionality and when it comes to people being comfortable with how they're described on stage, um, we had an interesting discussion in the rehearsal room today around what happens if you are non-binary and, and sometimes mm. anatomy is described or skin colour is described mm. for someone who can't see it. So how do you go around that if you don't want your anatomy or, or body described at all? Mm. But then everybody can see things as an audience apart from the blind and partially sighted. So how do we... It's like it's really thinking in an opposite way. Yeah, It's, it's totally opposite way of thinking. So it takes a, a bit for people's heads to get around it. Because there and there are and there are tricks and, and, and ways that you can absolutely creatively do it, but it's a hard conversation and it's a confronting conversation yeah. and it's an incredibly complex conversation. But at the end of the day, the blind and partially sighted have a right to see in 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 hearing the audio description yeah. what everybody else objectively sees. Mm-hmm. And it it becomes a super tricky conversation. I can't imagine how I would navigate that sort of conversation. It's exciting, though. It is very exciting. Super exciting. Yeah, very progressive that we're even having these sorts of conversations. Massively progressive that I'm in a a show that wants to have those conversations. definitely. That's phenomenal. That's, That's a significant change in the landscape, which is super exciting. I have a lot of respect for everyone that's involved in that show and all the work that Mm. you're doing together to break these sort of barriers Mm. that we have. Yeah, same. I'm really impressed with my my peers, actually. Yeah. To the peers, we love you. Thank you. Love you. you. (laughs) (laughs) In speaking of barriers, though, could you maybe provide uh, some other examples 
uh, of other barriers to accessibility that artists with disabilities might encounter? Yeah. So I recently had an international job. I was on an international project and I finished the project with a debrief. And in that debrief, they were like, what worked well, what didn't work well? And I said, well, my accessibility was a bit tricky. And they were like, oh, what can we change in the physical environment? What physically needs to change? And I'm like, no, actually, it's it's not the physical, it's the interpersonal level. Mm. So for me as an artist, my barriers are around interpersonal communications because a lot of that is a lot of our communications is non-verbal body language so if I'm in a theatre project whether it's on the floor making work and I've got someone grumpy with me but I haven't seen the signs of why and they don't know how to communicate it then it's like okay I've got to work through this kind of communication challenge because I don't have all the information in front of me so there's often a lot of myth busting and a lot of clarifying around misunderstandings of I just didn't see what was going on. So people think that I'm either authoritarian or stupid or make all these other judgments when I'm literally just didn't see what happened. (laughs) So so that's when you're making work. When you're actually a performer in a theatre or an artist in an art gallery, it's about that backstage area that's not often thought about. Mm. So for someone who uses a wheelchair, for example, often backstages are very narrow, might have steps, might have no accessible bathroom, right. might not have a, a bench height that's suitable in a dressing room, all those kind of things. But for me, it's about are the edges of things lined? Do I know what door I'm going through? Am I going to get lost? Does Do the techies know that I can't see? So then when I ask them questions, Uh, I really need very clear verbal information, Mm. especially in something like a lighting plot, for example. So it's constantly talking through those things and trying to be as clear as I can be from my end when I work with venues. So... I've, I've done it and I and I continue to do it. So I'm a, a professional jobbing artist. Yeah. So it's absolutely possible. It's not an issue. It's not a like major setback, but it is a daily occurrence. You've said something that I I, I just loved mm-hmm. what you said. So I do want to quote it back to Go. you. <laughs> 2016 <for> <laughs> quote. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you said that you care about your image but you're choosing to balance your conscious representation of yourself without caring about what people think about your difference. Mm. So maybe could you talk us through that, like that statement in itself, because I thought it was very powerful. That was very intellectual of me, wasn't it? Yeah, really intellectual. <laughs> I was like, damn, look at Sarah, yeah. go on. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I, you know, I have to think about what people think of me all the time. Yeah. So I was born with very thin hair. It's part of my genetic condition. It just never grew. Mm-hmm. So people assume oh did she lose her hair to cancer or what happened Mm. to her or what's wrong with her and there's actually nothing wrong with me Mm. it just never grew so in that sense I've always had to think about um, how people relate to me in terms of gender most people have thought that I was a man up until age 15 or so yep yep Uh, so it's always been part of my background to think about okay I have to actually be very very conscious about the assumptions people make and then I have to try and correct them within the first moment that I meet someone to absolutely Mm. disarm them Mm. so I have to be very very conscious about the image I put out there 
now I use what I've got and my look is my brand for my art and I think it's really, really powerful and enough big companies around the world are buying into difference and, and body difference as a selling point mm. and an actual massive positive to attract audiences and I think that's phenomenal and really, really great. Yeah. And that's because of the hard work that performers with disability have done before me. Yeah. And I need to acknowledge that their pathway was not easy and they fought and they fought and they fought for us to actually have a little bit more space on stage and screen. Now we're fighting to have more diversity on stage and screen so we're picking up that fight or that conversation and and following it forward. But with my image, uh, it's about having to constantly think about the relationship between how I present myself. And that's kind of hard because I really can't see how I look. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> does that a bit yeah. of a challenge? Yeah. 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 So I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, so I'm very, very afraid of image in many ways. And so I've, I've counterbalanced that with trying to be very conscious about it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot to think about mm. in itself. Wow. Yeah. So how would you audio describe yourself then? Yeah. <laughs> I, am, I have short stature. Okay. Um, I like to say I'm female. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can tell it in the voice. Yeah. So I don't have to say that. Um, so I have short stature. I wear glasses. I usually wear hoop earrings. Um, so I'll describe whatever jewellery I've got on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have thin, wispy hair and it's blonde. Mm-hmm. One of my eyes goes a little bit crooked, so I try and make a joke <laughs> what I look like, you know. And I'm muscular because I do circus training. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and, then I'll, and then I'll describe maybe what I'm wearing. So I'm wearing a red jumper at the moment uh, with a black uh, skirt that's pinstriped and the pinstripes are white. I'm wearing black boots and stockings. Mm. So and then I'll, I'll go to that kind of level. People can describe themselves in a funny way mm-hmm. or in a character-driven kind of way or in a political way. But mm-hmm. as long as it stays relatively objective in terms of really giving someone who needs audio description a, a bit of a picture about who's actually in front of them. Right. What you see is what a blind person deserves to see. Of course. It also this becomes really interesting. interesting when an audio describer has to describe nude performance or nude visual arts. Yeah, how do you do that? Yeah. I mean, how big is, are the breasts, you right. know? What does that genital area look like? How do you describe that to a blind That's person, wild. you know? But, yeah, going back to what you said before, if someone does identify as gender non-conforming or non-binary, what do you say? It is it always necessary to mention anatomy? Like, what do you do? That's, yeah. Because I actually did It's see, cool, actually. It's, it's no, cool. It's wild yeah. in a good way. Sorry, it's, I use wild nah, too wild many different ad- ways. Absolutely. <laughs> no, nah, I got it. I got it. Yeah, okay. Because <laughs> I actually watched this little um, clip the other day of... Mm. A woman who works at Pornhub, yeah, and she's doing audio description oh, on Pornhub. Great, and I was like, something that I've never. Oh my god, of, send them so my way. <laughs> I've never I'll watched. I'll find a- the link in the documentary. <laughs> I've never watched a porno. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Now you could if you wanted to. <laughs> right, gone are the days of barriers. There, <laughs> no, yeah, Pornhub has your back. You know? yeah. <laughs> great. Um, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting that they were thinking about that and really important mm. of mm. course but if Porno can do it surely we can all do it right <laughs> that is the catchphrase if Porno can do it surely we can do it <laughs> it's it's really important because um, women with disability especially and men with disability as well everybody with disability 
uh, are either seen, well, often seen as asexual. And because of our history of anti-marriage laws and oppression in terms of relationships um, and romance, there's a lot of people who are really stuck in that area. And talking about sexuality and having sex and having loving relationships, having brothels that cater Mm. to people with disability, all that's super, super important. Most definitely. Hmm. Yeah, it's really disempowering to assume that just because somebody has a disability that they're not interested in having sex. Exactly, yeah. Or being a mother or a parent, you know, a parent, yeah. I think that's something that we all need to think more critically about as Mm. well. Making assumptions about people with disabilities is very wrong. We should all know this. It is, in essence, ableism. I guess we live in such an ableist, like heteronormative, cis, white world, as people always hear me say. So we always fall, like it's so deeply entrenched within us that we fall to these assumptions, but it's so wrong. It's literally like, I actually had this conversation with my parents the other day, retraining your mind to understand that the things that you've been taught are wrong. And it's so difficult. Like you're literally decolonizing your mind and it's, a challenge like every day there's something that I find that I've been doing that I realize I shouldn't have been doing or saying or whatever yeah I'm, I'm so curious as to whether you've had those thoughts or while Sarah and I have been chatting have you been thinking about how you would objectively describe yourself uh text through to 0409 945 945 would love to hear your thoughts so let's have a break and when we get back we'll be discussing disability as a culture the world's first ballet school for the blind and partially sighted. As I mentioned before, I'll also be chatting with Sydney rapper Phil Fresh about his latest single, Jonah. You're listening to Don't At Me on FBI Radio. Can you break sometimes? Sometimes. 
So that was Blood Orange, also known as Devonte Hines, uh, with Charcoal Baby of his latest released Negro Swan. It was actually just released a week or two ago. The album itself, it's it's so incredible. You're listening to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. My name is Aya Butanye Abrikasa, and I'm here with Sarah Hubold, freak show performer, disability advocate, and just, you know, the baddest we're discussing disability arts history and what that means so maybe Sarah could you talk us through what disability arts history is referring to so when we talk about disability arts history we really need to know the context in in which has come before us as well as the performers who have come before us Mm. so performers who have come before me in my line of circus work are the freak show performers some of them won't openly identify for example Frida Kahlo is claimed as an artist with disability by our community. But she may not have openly said that D word when she was alive, you know, and some cultures don't have the disability word. Mm. But our community says she is, is much, very much one of our forerunners. So we have had artists with disability along the way. They may not have had those activism conversations, but we've had them. So we can't say that we've never had them. So that's what I'm interested in in that conversation is like they've occurred, let's honour them. Now let's bring that forward, not forget what we've had, bring that forward and let's ask for more. more on our stages and screens so i'm super excited with what's happening globally because we are getting more on the screens and stages Mm. we've got a lot of work to do uh, and we still have way too many able-bodied people playing disabled roles and characters and that's not appropriate anymore there's enough beautiful and talented actors uh, and actresses and everyone else in between to play any of those roles yeah that's actually mm. really interesting that you bring that up, especially considering what that we're talking about, the importance of representation. I'm just thinking about a conversation we had before we came on air about your recent trip. Would you maybe want to talk a little bit about that? So I've been very lucky this year. I've done a little bit of international travel and I started the year going to Brazil, to mm-hmm. Sao Paulo, and I was there in total for 10 weeks in the end. But I, I wrote a, a project around basically something I saw on Facebook. So Mm -hmm. a few years ago, I saw a video on Facebook of the only ballet school in the world for blind and partially sighted ballerinas. And it was just a share on Facebook, just like a a social media video. And I was like, hmm, one day I'm going to go visit them. So I wrote a funding application thanks to OZCO and I went. I I went to Brazil and I did ballet every day from 8am in the morning and I got to be in a room full of blind and partially sighted ballerinas who have been training for about 10 years. The school's existed for 20 years um, or 20 plus years and these ballerinas were really professional and they were all blind or partially sighted. So it's the first time in my life that I've ever stood in a room full of artists of the same cultural identity as me. Wow. So for the first week I, I just cried 
I cried in every ballet lesson. (laughs) Um, And I was really emotional because it's like, imagine meeting someone of your culture for the very, very first time as an adult. Yeah. Yeah, it was really phenomenal. Because dance and blindness don't really go hand in hand, which is what I'm exploring in my fellowship because dance as an audience member is quite a visual art form to watch Mm -hmm. Um, and hopefully the dancers convey something kinesthetic so you can feel it at the same time. Mm -hmm. But if you've never been able to see it, you don't really know what it is. So then there's not that many professional dancers in the world, like actual practising artists who are blind or partially sighted. So I'm on a hunt now to find them and collect them and I've uncovered so many more than we ever realised. So it's again yeah. that perspective. Mm. I had this assumption that there wouldn't be very many because I'd never met anyone else. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Brazil and met a whole handful of people. Then I went to London and met some amazing circus and physical theatre performers who were blind, partially sighted. Then I went to New York and met blind and partially sighted dancers. Mm. And then I found out there's someone in China. And then I found out there's someone in other parts of the world. Wow. And I'm like... Oh my gosh. It's a community. It's a total community. And I found out about people who had who were performers who are no longer performing. Uh, particularly in New York, I found out about dancers who used to be with really big companies mm. and the companies would help them work through the framework of what it means to be blind and be a dancer mm. and they'd do productions and I had no idea this existed. Mm. So I apologise if this is an ignorant mm. question, but how exactly do you go about learning ballet mm. when you're blind or partially sighted? And that's exactly my question that I wanted to discover in Sao Paulo. I went to Brazil to do ballet. I mean, who does that? <laughs> I am obsessed with that idea. <laughs> I mean, I did capoeira as well, but I did ballet every day. I went to study Fernanda Biaccini's methodology, mm-hmm. and she's done her master's and PhD and, and everything on this particular technique. And it is a technique that others around the world are adopting. It's just that Fernanda has done it for 20-plus years and has a whole school dedicated to blind and partially sighted people. So structurally that's incredible yeah. and very, very generous. So her methodology is around describing the movement first, then the dancer being able to touch, the blind dancer being able to touch the instructor, mm-hmm. and then and that's the way in which they get feedback. So what generally happens is that people want to grab the blind person's body without consent. Mm. So move your arm this way and grabs it and puts oh, wow. it into the space and time. That's non-consensual touch, mm. and that means that the dancer who is blind is not in control of where their body goes. Mm-hmm. So it's all about giving that dancer back that consent and that control mm-hmm. and the dancer being able to touch the instructor's body. And we actually have a quicker we have a quicker process of learning tactile information than someone who's not blind because that's what we do our entire life since the day we've become blind, whether that's from birth or by acquired blindness. Mm-hmm. So I could touch something and tell you exactly what it is like 10 times faster than you could right. if you had your eyes closed, yeah. you know, or if you weren't looking. And so that's the methodology of fast kinesthetic learning through touch and it's really beautiful. It takes a little bit of extra time and it takes the instructor to know the process. And ballet is um, not an easy thing. Ballet is not is. an easy thing because it's also about finer detail as well mm. and, and learning that finer detail. So it's incredible. The school's incredible. That mm. sounds really incredible. Mm. So in case anybody was looking to just look it up, if there were people that were blind or partially yeah. sighted listening, yeah. where could they find information about this? So the web website and the, and the company name is Asocial Fernando Biaccini. 
And it's if you, even if you, I mean, honestly, if you just Google blind ballerinas in Brazil in São Paulo or the ballet school for the blind in the world, it will come up. Okay. So um, it's very, very beautiful. It's mm. really beautiful. Mm. But you spoke before non-consensual touch. Mm. Yep. Is that something that you encounter a lot? Or people daily. Blind? <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, daily, daily. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, I, and I speak about this in, in art projects sometimes as well. It's that... If or when you are blind or, or partially sighted, um, you can't see the hand coming towards you. Yeah, that would be. Really... So you can't know if someone's about to touch you until you feel that touch. And a lot of blind and partially sighted people have issues around intimacy and touch and mm. and that kind of thing because it's been non-consensual their whole lifetime so for example the first thing to say is hi i'm here i'm present my name is can i give you a hug Mm -hmm. you know or if you if you're saying oh let's go this way and we're going together down the road um would you like to take my arm so it's about the blind person having choice and control over Mm. when they touch and when they're being touched and that mark gets overstepped a lot yeah it's like people think that they're helping Mm -hmm. quote unquote Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah. yeah. The amount of times I've been dragged across the room and across the street when I have no idea if the car's coming. Oh my gosh. Oh my that gosh. Would be terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying. Wow. It's terrifying. I mean, I use I use now a blind cane when I'm unsure and feel unsafe in the streets. Sometimes okay. I don't use it, sometimes I do. So I guess with reference to your beliefs about disability culture, what is disability culture and how do we go about normalising it? I'm so adamant to talk about disability as a culture. Mm -hmm. We are a cultural community. The deaf community has done this very, very well. Um, The deaf community has gone, we're a cultural community. We have our own language. In Australia, it is Auslan. Mm. So it's a sign language. In New Zealand, the New Zealand sign language is a national language. So it is very much culturally accepted as a culture. Now, in the wider disability community, I think it's very important that we talk about ourselves as a culture as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Because of our shared history, our shared way of discussing things, our shared experience of life, our shared inequalities, our shared fights for justice, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So, And our shared ways of communicating as well. So I talk about community to combat that kind of argument. And then I talk about just history and actual the facts and how many people with disability are are actually out there as jobbing professional artists and how many actually get the roles and and why and why not. Mm. And then I generally say that um, someone playing a role that is meant to be for a person with disability is really like doing blackface and Mm. we don't do blackface anymore. We don't do it, so we shouldn't be doing that because um, it is akin to that. What what I mean when I say that is um, that we've had a particular history and it's been absolutely washed over by a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So our history, for example, of the freak shows as the safest place for artists with disability to be, and it still is an amazing place for artists with disability. We have contemporary freak shows. It is a legitimate way of earning money. Mm. And so... If uh, a more dominant culture or someone kind of says, actually, that history is wrong, it was exploitative or really changes the perspective of that history or the facts of that history, then I say that that is colonising a a particular perspective. It is overpowering it. It is oppressive. It's not our truth. And if we take away our truth as people with disability, we've taken away the ground that we stand on. Yeah, right. And I just 
I'm a guardian of that and I call on other um, freak show performers to also be a guardian of that because it's really, really important. Mm. So it takes a lot. I think I have a lot of respect for you because I think anyone that has experienced marginalisation because of their identity, Mm. there's a lot of emotional labour that's involved with having those conversations. So how do you sort of mitigate that? Because it it must get really tiring after Mm. times when you're literally navigating this world and having to deal with this experience like every day where people treat you some Mm. sort of way simply because of just you being you and just existing. So it's very, very exhausting. I can imagine. And I've been willing to give it... um, and I've given it in lots of different areas. So, uh, you know, I started off with a sports career before the Paralympics and then I went into disability advocacy and lobbying mm-hmm. where innately you give it as part of your job. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went into arts management and as an artist. So I had different spheres of my career and different places where I'm willing to have those conversations. And I've come to a point now, um, I've been very, very lucky to receive a Create New South Wales Fellowship this year. Amazing, and Yeah, it's super cool. But what that's meant is is that it's elevated me to one international artist because I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. Um, And two, it's really given me a clear picture of where I want to go. So it is really now about narrowing down who I bother to have those conversations with and conserving my energy to actually make my career happen. And I've watched people who've gone before me do this as well. They've been massive advocates and then they've zeroed in and honed in on making their arts career successful and that's actually been the strongest way to create change so but I do get exhausted I get very very exhausted because it is a very daily conversation so um you know I I'm overly generous and I and I really I really do want to have the conversation so I will when I can but I'm increasingly going you know what I'm just gonna go rehearse my show can we just like pause this you know so um and I learned that actually from a conference I went to in Japan in 2014 Mm -hmm. it's organized by the Japanese cabinet and it was around uh volunteer management when it comes to people with disability and all the non-government organizations from New Zealand and Poland and, and, and UK delegations were there and one of the Japanese constituents said we like to recognise the contribution of people with disability as complete volunteering every minute of every um, hour of their day Mm. because that's what we're doing. We're doing this emotional labour as volunteer work. Yeah, it is. It's a contribution to our society and we are constantly, constantly giving. Yeah, constantly educating Mm. people. Re-educating people, and I've also I've also come to the point of when people go, oh, thank you for educating me. If that said a year after I've met them, I'm like, this isn't education anymore. This is willful ignorance. Yeah. So I've had to draw those lines as well, mm. which is harsh, but it's actually true. I don't think it's that harsh. Mm. I think we did speak about this a little bit on the way here as well. Mm. That you know, people think. Like, this is your life and your identity. Mm. And obviously, I can't necessarily relate to your personal lived experience, Mm. but I can relate in the sense that people ask me questions about being black and whatever, and it's really frustrating. And then when you have to have these hard conversations, Mm. they get sort of uncomfortable about it, but they sort of forget that this is your life. Like, you're dealing with these uncomfortable conversations all the time. Exactly. And I I tend to – I'm very big on disability culture and I'm very big on – it is the part of my identity that I do talk about Mm -hmm. quite openly. And then I kind of go, that's cool that I mentioned it. We'll talk a little bit about culture. Now let's talk about justice. Mm, Yeah. And so I'm not interested in talking about identity forever. I'm interested in talking about where that leads. Yeah. 
and that has to be to justice. Definitely. Mm. Systemic change is the only way yeah. that we're going to... And for us to all understand each other so I can understand your experience and you can understand mine so it's mutual, you know. Definitely. Mm. I think you are very generous with sharing what you do share. Thank you. many people in this world that definitely appreciate that. We need that. I've definitely come up against people who don't want to hear it. Really? Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm so shocked by that. I'm like, what? (laughs) I am and I'm not shocked at the same time. Such is life. Yeah, right. (laughs) But that's also why I want to treat it in, in art and put comedy to it and make it an enjoyable theatre piece so that it becomes a really entertaining thing for people to mm. watch as well, you know. I want to make work that has intent behind it and has my experience and my thoughts of the world behind it. And I, um, when I create work, I tend to really start quite in a didactic way and then I make it poetic mm-hmm. and I pull it apart and I start again so it becomes something poetic and engaging and interesting rather than hitting someone over the head with a hammer you know in in terms of my arts practice I'm very very interested in creating innovation and um pathos on stage love it yeah I think that's really important though Mm. innovative ways to educate people you're doing it Mm, I'm trying Uh, (laughs) I think you're doing very well so maybe do you want to just talk us through what you're doing at Melbourne Fringe Festival Yes. So I'm in two shows. One of them is with uh, four other performers Mm -hmm. and it is called Church of Oyster and it's on from the 22nd to the 29th of September at the Fringe Festival Hub. And this is the one where we're exploring audio description in the show, which I'm. it's called Aesthetics of Access. I'm really super excited by it. And then I'm doing my solo show as well at Melbourne Fringe, which is called Cuckoo the Bird Girl. Great. So that's a story of a historical performer that used to be in a film called Freaks from 1932, Todd Browning film. I actually I think, love that film. Yeah, it's a great film. <laughs> it's it. like number 72 or 73 in the top 1,000 films to see in your lifetime. Wow. So it's incredibly important to a particular community, particularly the sideshow community, Mm. particularly to natural-born freaks. Um, So that's people who have a a genetic abnormality or or look a bit different. Um, And and they were traditionally called natural-born freaks in the circus sideshow. So I tap into that history Mm. and I bring the story of a female character through interwoven with my own story of doing sideshow. Mm. I'm particularly proud of this show um, because I've worked on it for several years and and I can't wait to show it to Melbourne. Amazing. Mm. That's like, just for reference, this is a film where... Came from. Yes. Uh, just in case you ever wondered where that did come from. It's a lot. Uh, you see it a lot in pop culture. You do. That Google Gabba, one of us, we accept you, one of us. Yeah. It's a code of the freaks. It is extremely important to our community. It is really about not doing harm to other people, respecting all people no matter who they are, mm. and that generosity of respect and acceptance with every human being. And the guardianship of that code of freaks, we as natural-born freaks take that really seriously. Yeah, I think that's an ethos everybody should take seriously Mm, and sort of incorporate into our own lives because it's really important to support each other. Right. Into you using that term? Mm. So one of the things I discuss in my solo show, Cuckoo the Bird Girl, is what people have said to me in the past in terms of why are you doing circus? Don't you know the history of the freak shows? Mm. So it has this myth around it that it was a really exploitative place, Mm. it was a really bad place for performers and people with disability. But actually what my show uncovers is the social context 
Because if you take something out of context, you're not really doing justice to the conversation. Of course. We don't know what was happening back then. You had compulsory sterilisation. You had anti-marriage laws. You had ugly laws. You had all this punitive inequality. And it actually meant that the freak show was the safest place for people to be. Yeah. Uh, And it's also, I think about it, in terms of like a source of income for people that might not have been able to get work elsewhere. Exactly right. There was no other choice for employment in the day. Yeah, people got to mm. eat. You got to live. That's right. And they were <laughs> rock stars of their time. Oh, I can you know, imagine. They were rock stars. So I, I tell a story about this and I lace it with my own sideshow trick. So I've got glass walking. I've got hula hoops. Oh. I've, I've got a bit of blockhead. So, I, you know, I, I go all out there with the circus sideshow. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So thank you so much, Sarah for coming in and having a chat. So how about a song as we mentally digest everything that we've um, discussed? Sarah has introduced me to the very talented Velvet Crayon, who is an electric one-man band, a ukulele, singer-songwriter, natural-born freak, sideshow performer, and so much more. Text in any thoughts on our discussion to 0409-945-945. You're listening to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. Don't sweat your shiny bottom. You're just a little overbaked. You should drink some water. listening to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. That was Velvet Crayon with Soggy Bottom. Uh, that was a recommendation of an artist that came from the lovely Sarah Bolt, who I interviewed just before. I am now here with Phil Fresh. Hey. <laughs> Welcome. So, you know, we were having a little chat before we actually 
popped in um, and turned the microphones on. Mm-hmm. But you just revealed that Phil Fresh is not, in fact, your government name. So please no, talk no. me through that. Oh, uh, so yeah, my name, it's both Tongan because I come, yeah, both my parents are Tongan. So it's Felipe is the actual like pronunciation. But yeah, we were talking about how like, I kind of got to the stage when I was at school and it would, I was like, oh, just call me Phil. Because every time if someone would like, try to say, how do you say your name? Like, uh-huh. you know, it's just like, oh, just, just call me Phil. Like, <laughs> that'll do, you know, so yeah. Felipe is the, is the correct pronunciation. Right. See, I understand that completely. Mm-hmm. My government name, as you know, obviously, is Aya Batonye, mm-hmm. But for years, I let people call me Tony because it was I just couldn't be bothered. What do they say for, for when they try to say your name? They just didn't really so they just try. <laughs> they just look at it and they just be like... Where's Annabelle? Uh, yeah, and they're like... <laughs> And they're like, Abiba. And I'm like, what? Are you reading? It's yeah. phonetic. Like, it's so it easy. So let's try. Right? Just give it a crack. I got, like, weird ones. Like, uh, like it was close, but it just wasn't. Like, it was, like, Philippi. Or one time I got Philippi. Philippi. Yeah, I was like, that That doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Philip most of the time, but, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, Philip is kind of close. Like, so yeah, you're like, come on now. Like, oh, I don't want to be a Philip. Just call me Phil. Like. That's it. You know what I say to people? I'm like, if you can say Dostoevsky and you can say Daenerys or any other name from Game of Thrones, surely <laughs> you can try and say my name. That's it. That's where I'm at now. That's it. It's a part of our cultural heritage, our identity. We mm. want to accept that. But speaking <laughs> of cultural identity, you've just released Jonah. Mm-hmm. I love the track. I think it's Thank fire. You. Like actually, I heard it and I was like, yes, yes, yes. It. it was. So nice. It's yeah. It's so good. So talk us through it. How did this all come about? So obviously, it's sort of you're doing it in response to Chris Lilly trying to act like uh, somebody of Tongan heritage. Kind of. Yeah. Like it was in reference to that. Like I don't know. I just um like things that happened at a certain point in my life where like I was meeting all these like cool you know Polynesian artists whether they were DJs performers radio people whatever and it was like oh like you know for me I was like I never really knew that there were those kind of people out there so I was like that's really cool that like you guys are doing that and for me like it motivated me inspired me to like you know I've got to like you know rep where I'm from you know because like there's not many of us out here so you know I grew up and I didn't really know any like like there were like a few Polynesian musicians but like not necessarily in like rap I don't think so Mm. So, and for me as a rapper I was like oh like you know it'd be cool if like there was someone out there so for that I kind of where Jonah kind of came from you know so yeah obviously I'm making reference to Jonah from Summer High Tide Chris yeah. character and like yeah it just came from like a whole bunch of like interactions with other people so when I'd meet people they're like where are you from and then like, go through that whole like dance oh. routine where it's like I had a cabbie one, one time pull me up and was like, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from Ashfield. Oh, he's like, no, God. where are you from? Oh, like, my gosh. I was born here, bro. He's like, no, what's your background? It's like, oh, my background. Yeah. So, like, where are you really from? Yeah, They're like, yeah, really? Was, yeah. So then I was like, got, got to say, I was like, oh, like, I'm from Tonga. And I was like, most of the time people be like, oh, yeah, like, I know Tonga. But, like, sometimes it'd be like, oh, like, Jonah, right? Wow, like, really? Yeah, oh, but if it wasn't rugby, then it was like, Oh, like, Jonah from Tonga, right? Oh, God. That's so funny. That show's so funny. Oh, it's like, you don't God. look like that, though. And I was like, because I'm not all that. Man. Yeah. Like, I know I don't look like that. Wow. So I kind of understand from that, and I was kind of just like, yeah, like, I I know F and Jonah. Like, from there, I was just like, all right, I know what to write about. And I just wrote it out in one night. And I made the beat, like, probably two days later. I was like, 
it just happened. Mm. I was like, crazy. Like, I feel like, yeah, it's certain things happened in my life and it led me to that point and just kind of hit off from there. Yeah, love yeah. it, love it. So yeah. you made, so you make your own beats. We talked about yes. that before a little as well. Uh-huh. So what was going through your head whilst you were making this beat for Jonah? Were you just like mad and just like, because it's got such yeah. a heavy beat. Yeah, because it is kind of like, it's, it's kind of like a bit high tempo and it's just, yeah, it's just drums and like, it's just like a statement, you know, and I wanted it to be short as well because I didn't want, no, I didn't want no hook, even though like there is like one hook, I only say like twice, but I just kind of wanted to be like short, precise, and just like, there it is. Yeah. That, that's it. Like, that's all I gotta say. Like, I didn't want to like be a thing, but like, yeah, that's kind of how it all happened. Yeah. It's just like frustration, like... I wouldn't say anger, but just like, you know, like, oh, I just got to let you know. Like, yeah. I say it in the summer, I just had to let you know. I just yeah. had to let it go. Like, yeah, I just had to express where I was at that stage. Oh, totally understandable. And, yeah, it all just happened and we, you know, smashed it out and, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't it. even know. Like, I didn't <laughs> I know. It. Yeah, it's just happening. <laughs> yeah, but look, it's just going wild, like, now. Because, yeah, it's a really, really great track. Thank you. Thank um, you so how do you think... Chrysilli's Jonas stereotype has had a negative impact on people of Tongan descent, maybe. Um, I think it's just like what I was saying before. It's like, oh, like Tonga, Jonah, Jonah yeah. Tonga, right? Yeah. Like, and it's like, we're so much more of than course. that. You know, yeah. like, we're not just like a caricature, we're not that. You know, like, I mean, I'm not going to lie, like, you know, like, there were, I, like, I knew people in my family, like, cousins and relatives who, like, reminded me of that (laughs) but like not everyone was like that you know like it wasn't necessarily people like that it was like you had moments where it was like oh like come on bro like but like it was just like don't like limit me to that because I'm not that yeah I'm more than that I want to do music like like I was saying before there's not many musicians doing that stuff so yeah it's like a homogenous identity but Mm. obviously way more than that so you did release Excursions of Love yep last year so that was your debut conceptual album uh-huh. so talk us through that how did you come from that album to where you are now i don't know like i last year when i put that out like i just had that i made these like songs and like they all kind of had the same theme and i kind of just like went from there and was just like oh like mom would just like make this weird story about it mm. and it's like it wasn't weird, but, like, you know, I was like, oh, why don't I just make a story about that and, like, kind of combine it so it's a bit more than just, like, 12 tracks, you know, it's, it's like, a kind of like a story. Yeah. Um, so that was last year, and, yeah, I was just like, I was like, oh, cool, like, that's where I am right now, you know, like, I'm going to talk about that. And then from there, yeah, like, it, since it was a conceptual album, I wanted to put out something that was a bit more personal, a bit more real. And, um, yeah, that's, I think that's just been the vibe this year, just being putting myself out there and just letting people know like what i'm about who i am where i'm, where I'm from like mm. yeah just giving some more insight into like who i am as an artist i guess so, so yeah cool no yeah, yeah no i was just gonna say so you were mentioning that you've got um an ep coming out in october Correct. Yes, this I do. year I do. so what can we expect because you're you know you're just putting yourself out there yeah. what are we gonna be keeping an eye out for uh it's gonna be somewhat more of the same as Jonah mm-hmm. it's a bit more based on like identity so mm-hmm. cultural identity of course with Jonah I've got another track in there with amazing like Polynesian artists who I've Great. met throughout the time like they have, I've been glad enough to meet them and like get them in the studio and record some stuff 
So I'm very excited about that. And just identity in general, like, you know, not just cultural identity, but also identity is like, where like I see myself as a musician, mm-hmm. like, should I even be like doing this? Like, where do I stand? You know, yeah. stuff like that. So yeah, it's a bit more personal, a bit more about identity and just figuring out like who I am. So last week we did discuss, I'm just actually curious about whether you had a similar experience, but last week I was speaking with Carrie Hu, so she's a community organizer, anti-racism yep. activist, and we discussed that moment, like when you sort of realize the sort of world that you live in and that people do make assumptions about you based off what you look like and you know if you have a different skin color or whatever you're obviously more hyper visible to the masses but we sort of discussed that moment when you you sort of go shit like the world's actually pretty racist hey Mm. because like for years i think when we're younger you kind of just like you it's not that you don't want to like i can't speak for everyone i can only speak for myself but i felt like for me personally it wasn't that i didn't want to acknowledge that the world was racist i just hoped that it was better, better than it was than, yeah and then it came a point where i just realized no actually no, this is pretty kind of cooked pretty wack. yeah <laughs> so uh have you had that moment is that what um, you think might have brought you to this album as well yeah. I don't put words into your mouth but just no curious. i think yeah i think it definitely plays a role in that like obviously with like especially right now you know politicians and all of everything's gone <laughs> on there yeah it's very really interesting but i think i kind of had that my first moment where that was a thing was like after I had left high school, because, like, um, yeah, like I said before, like, you know, like, I went to an all-boys private school, mm. um, so, like, obviously there's, like, one sort of, like, mindset, mm. or, like, similar sort of mindsets there, and it's kind of like, you're kind of confined in this, like, this is how it's supposed to be, because you're in an all-boys private school. Yeah. So, like, I was, like, had one idea there, and then, you know, years after high school, I kind of realized how, like, like, the shit that I was even saying that, like, I thought was, like, you know, cool to say because, like, everyone else is saying it, like, mm-hmm. I shouldn't have been saying that, you Yeah, know? It's, like, it wasn't that moment to, like, yeah, I met other people and, you know, met, like, met, met my girl that it was just, like, I I can't believe, like, I was ever that guy because, yeah. you know, just it was just a toxic toxic sort of environment there. So I think it was, yeah, just, like, years after high school when I was when I had that moment, I was just, like, damn, like... There are, I, I went to school with people like that. Yeah. And like I was hanging with people like that. And it kind of rubbed off on me. And I'm like, damn, like, that sucks. Like, this is, it's terrible. Yeah, I think it sucks. But I think also the fact that you come to a point where you realize that, I think that's the important thing. It's like acknowledging that that has so happened. You, yeah, exactly. And changing after the fact, I think, Definitely. is the most important thing. It's like, we've all been, done it. Yeah, yeah. It's been like being accountable for to like your past as well yeah like, yeah look messed up there but now i know like you know in future i'm not gonna do that yeah <laughs> it's like there's things that i think we also just internalize because you're like it sometimes it's just easier to go along with the pack with certain things as yeah, opposed definitely. to like being against the grain because when you're against people then it's, it's, it's always so it's a lot harder yeah oh yeah, my goodness it's not fun yeah have you felt like i don't know if you're very political on your facebook at all or like not political maybe like you talk about things like i guess it is political but talking yeah. about things related to race or yeah. anything like that have you found that you've lost any sort of friends through that sort of conversation or you've just maybe not lost maybe. but like steered away from certain friends yeah i feel like i there's been like I've had friends who kind of just like oh like that's a bit weird like mm. I'll see you later like peace out like and for me I'm just like cool I don't have to do that like that's it you know what I'm saying <laughs> cool with me man I'm, I'm gonna keep moving but yeah I think like it hasn't uh, nothing big has happened but like I know 
I do get a sort sort of vibe that like some people that I've like known for years and like kind of like um I'm gonna I'm good with that. Yeah. And it's like oh, man. Well, it's loss, been a loss. That's it, you know. It's been a loss. loss. I'm, I'm safe. <laughs> but I think it's actually for the best in those. Yeah, no, like from there, like you know, worst weight off my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, let's bring it back to your music a little bit. Okay. So I did see an interview that you did with Butter Sydney, mm-hmm. and they asked you, "How would you tell people what you sound, what your sound is like musically?" And I really, like, the reason I actually pulled this out is because I loved your response. (laughs) It's pop melodies over non-pop beats, if that makes sense. It's like if Zayn Malik had his solo album produced by Tyler, the creator. Yeah, wild. Tell me about that. What is is that? Have you actually heard, so you know how Zayn had that song called Pillow Talk? I'll be honest, I haven't heard that. Okay, well, he had a song, it was mad poppy. And then Tyler did a remix of it. Right. And it, like, pumped it up. So, like, kind of, like, yeah, I think that was, like, definitely fits them all for, like, Excursions of Love, where mm-hmm. it was just, like, like, pop is cool. Like, I grew up on pop, so I was, like, okay, like, I know what pop is, and, like, I kind of know, like, how to get there, but, like, I don't want to, like, just stay to that lane. Mm. I want to, like, do something else. So, like, yeah, I guess that definitely for Excursions of Love, like, that was perfect for that for that album that I put out. Uh I think with this EP coming up, it's it's more of this, it's similar, but like it's I guess it's yeah a bit more progressed, a bit more progression okay. I guess. Yeah. Slightly different. So not so, Zayn Maliki this time. Zane maybe Maliki. not for this particular release, no. <laughs> right. But like I still am gonna strive to get that. Sound <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I'm sure you'll get there if you're not already there. I'm sure you'll get there. Fingers I didn't crossed. hear the song. I, I haven't even heard it. I hope to go. <laughs> but, but I believe it. But thank you so much for coming in and having a chat. It was really fun. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. So, thank you. So we're going to end on Phil Fresh's fresh track, Jonah. Yeah, please text you to 0409-945-945. If you have any feedback or any questions for Phil Fresh, just a little warning. There is a language warning on this one. My name is Ayah Britonia Bricassi. You're listening to Don't At Me. And yeah, have a good afternoon. I said I got the keys like in the band. No, the swag of in the band. See the throne, see that line. Let me get up in the man. No, I was 365, 24 7. Been the plan since 95. Eating with the brethren. Someone get the waiter, cause I'm looking for some meat. I'll see him. Guess it's rare. You got me blue on this beat. This the Jew, this my feet. Gotta listen, gotta preach. Let the word go to you. It's the bum that's in the street. I said I ain't no fucking Jonah. Better check the fucking rap. No, I'm coming for the top. Don't be sleeping on my step. I've been hungry from the start. And I I ain't eating in the wild, so if you don't treat me proper, I'ma turn up real wild. Said I ain't no fucking donut, better check my stance. Mind on the grind, cause I got big plans. And they don't understand, I ain't never coming weak. I ain't about to waste my time, man. Fuck it, let him sleep. I said, okay, okay, ooh, let me catch my breath. Ooh, let me kiss myself, yeah, let me puff my chest. See, I'm not that big, no, I'm not that tall. But it don't matter to me, cause I ain't running from y'all. Y'all don't got nothing on me, cause I ain't calling the quits. 
Y'all still talking about numbers, my one is 676 And I don't need no split to ever get this high See if you look at my blood, then you see greatness inside You see it's F-I-E-S-H, that's the boy Just a non-filler, that's the noise, that's the noise Get fresh dealer, I ain't even at the try Got y'all talking about fresh and I ain't even at the die See my name need a Rita, my girl need a crown My team gotta eat, I need y'all to turn the sound Keep the word, hear the truth, pay attention, kiss the ring See if I'm coming from the kingdom, no I'm about to be a king Never a doubt. Never a doubt.